consider yourself invited uh, to our table this morning. We're going to dine and feast on the Word. Uh, pray that um, God will reveal Himself in His Word to you. If you don't know Him, that you'll come to know Him. If you know Him, that you'll grow in Him. Uh, for those of you who are members here and been walking here, pray that uh, God is growing you and moving you towards Him and towards one another. I'm going to share some scripture with you. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him, who is seated on the throne, and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning for the opportunity to gather as your body and praise you and worship you with our voices and song and the reading and teaching and preaching of your word. Father, we're thankful for Christ. And as Mark shared, just the hope to worship eternally, to never cease in saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. Father, we pray that everything this morning will be for your sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin with prayer. Lord, in these next few minutes, we want you to be enjoyed. I just pray that your design and your way will be on display and that we can embrace it. Lord, I pray in those lives and hearts where a light needs to be shown in the dark corners that that will happen. And I pray uh, that those who are where the light's already shining in that place that they'll be affirmed. Lord, I recognize in the same message that some, that the Holy Spirit can rebuke some and encourage and assure others. And Lord, I just don't want that task myself. It's a whole lot more comfortable with the Holy Spirit doing that. And um, just pray that you'll just guide me in exposing your word this morning. And that it'll do its terrible and sweet work. Lord, also I want to pray for David Ferguson, just a friend and a brother and a, a teammate in commerce. Pray for Commerce Community Church. Lord, we pray that they will just enjoy you daily. Pray tonight as they gather corporately that you'll be honored and enjoyed. 
that the word will be preached and your people will be receptive and attentive with inclined ears, ready to walk in what they've heard. Lord, we love you. We turn this time over to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let me just kind of give you a bird's eye, a scriptural bird's eye, in case you want to jot down and kind of have some pages or some passages ready. Acts chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 1, Numbers chapter 12, and John chapter 8. That'll do for, for now. Acts chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 1, Numbers chapter 12, John chapter 8. We're in a series of sermons on the church right now. Brad was preaching a few weeks ago about missions and just kind of pointing out that missions and ministry are different. Ministry is an outflow of the church, but the church is, missions is to plant the church where the church isn't. So if we're going to plant the church where the church isn't, then we need a few tools. We need to be able to diagnose, well, where isn't it? Or where is it weak and where does it need to be strengthened? So we consider that we needed to engage biblically what is the church for that reason, but also for the reason that we needed to be, be held accountable as a church. We needed you to search the leadership. We needed this, the leadership to be guided and directed through the exposition of the Word to be the church as our Bible portrays. Not as people expect, not as even we want. But as our Bible says the church is, this is what we want to be. So it's a profit, been a profitable time for us. We've had three, three weeks in it so far. Uh, this morning is our fourth installment. The first week we considered that the church is a people. It's not an organization, not a club, and it's not a building. It's an organism. It's different. It's a people, a living people that are part of one another. Next we consider the church is an accountable people. It was a liar and a murderer that said, who am I, my brother's keeper? The church doesn't say that. The church's view on each other is that we are each other's keeper. Not like a bunch of meddlers, but like a bunch of teammates. When one falls down, another comes alongside and says, let me help you up, brother. We're on the same team exposing the glory of God. Not as meddlers, but as people who are accountable to each other for the sake of the beauty of the bride and the readiness when Christ returns. And then last week, we, we considered that the church is an accountable people who are led and leadable. Led by, we believe, plural pastors, plural elders, pastors, elders used interchangeably. Accountable to God, who, whom we will report to someday, and accountable to his people and searchable by his people. And then also that the people are to follow God's leadership, albeit through frail instrumentation. This week, we're going to consider the church as an accountable people. See, we're developing this definition. It's really pretty cool. The church is an accountable people who are led and leadable, taught and teachable. Taught and teachable. I'm going to begin with taught this morning. That's going to be kind of the outline for where we're going. Passage in Psalm 19. Just listen. I, I want you to kind of gravitate, unless you're just like sword drill warrior just kind of focus on the passage that I've already given you and just listen in between those. But for the time being, just listen to Psalm chapter 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. What I want to show you in these next few minutes is I want to show you God as preacher. 
God as preacher. We think of him as creator. We think of him as sustainer. We think of him as God, king of kings and Lord of lords. But have you ever thought of him as preacher? For he is preacher right here in Psalm chapter 19. He is preaching through instrumentation. And that instrumentation is creation itself. He's declaring, he's speaking, he's providing knowledge, he's revealing words, he's pouring out speech through these things that have been created. A sermon has been unfolding ever since time began. And the introduction to the sermon were the words, let there be light. Beautiful, amazing sermon has been unfolding over the ages. If you wonder why there's so many stars, well, that's why. Because it's a sermon declaring the glory of God. Why are there so many geese? Why so many grackles at Walmart? Can there be too many? Given what they're supposed to do? Why so many blades of grass? Why bother with those big pointy mountains? And what's with all those cloud formations that just reform every few minutes in every sky all over this world? Why those daily sunrises and sunsets? Why? Because they're a relentless message of the glory of God. That are preached through the instrumentation of creation. The waves better crash every few seconds on every seashore, on every coastline, on every continent, given what they do. The wind better blow and leaves better turn every color of orange imaginable, given what they do. They preach a message about the glory of God. God has been preaching from the very beginning. God has preached through the instrumentation of creation. God has also been preaching through relationship. There are unique men in our Bible, very unique men, men like Enoch that we know virtually nothing about other than he walked with God and one day he is and the next day he isn't. Where did he go? He didn't even die, Hebrews tells us. God just took him up. He walked with God. He had a front row seat to God's sermons. Noah is another dude, blameless, who walked with God. Abraham, to whom God revealed himself and he entered into covenant. Moses, who spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. These were unique men with front row seats to God's sermons on himself and his will and his plan and his glory. God preached through creation and God preached through relationship and God most of the time has been preaching through messengers. They were the prophets. If you've read a good portion of your Old Testament, it's just these little bitty books, one right after another. Some of them are little bitty. Some of them are huge. Prophets that are weeping. Prophets that are warning, proclaiming, foretelling. Men like Jeremiah, men like Elijah, men like Isaiah, Amos, Hosea, Joel, even a reluctant dude named Jonah. God has been preaching through instrumentation since the very beginning and on through the ages. God, it's real near and dear to me. I would have been unshaven today, but it just got so long. I just couldn't take it any longer, and I just had to shave. A man named John the Baptist. Anytime I mention his name, I just don't want to shave on that Sunday. But I couldn't take it any longer. John the Baptist, a manly man, a man that preached in the wilderness. People came up out to see him. Anybody that feels like you got to have a special, cool, amazing setting for people to come to church. The man's out in the wilderness preaching, eating Honey and locusts wearing wild animal skills, crying out. You want to know what preaching looks like and the difference between teaching and preaching? He's heralding. He's crying out, making straight the way of the Lord, preaching a message of repentance and faith. And then there's the alpha preacher. 
the alpha preacher Christ himself who preached from boats, who preached from hillsides, he preached beside fig trees, he preached beside the temple, he preached in synagogues, he preached in upper rooms, he preached in gardens, he preached by wells. One of my favorite pictures is where he's sitting in a house just talking and preaching in a house. And there's so many people stuff in this house that a paralytic can't even get in there. they got to make a hole in the ceiling. Bud Jones knocks a hole in the ceiling, and they let him down in there. And Jesus heals him. Man, Jesus was preaching. If you're a sword drill guy, you can look with me in Luke chapter 4. If not, then no worries. Just listen to this. Listen to this picture of Christ. Actually, I'm going to start in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verse 47. And he, Christ, was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they didn't find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging, listen, hanging on his words. And the next verse. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. This picture of Christ teaching and preaching Everywhere he goes, we, come, we, we, we understand that he came to die on a cross, but have you ever considered that he came to preach? Listen to this passage in, in Luke chapter 4. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, listen, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Have you ever seen Jesus as just preacher extraordinaire? And the message that he's preaching, he tells us in John chapter 14, he says, the word that you hear from me, it's not mine, but it's the Father's who sent me, preaching through instrumentation. God has been preaching over the ages through messengers, through creation, through his own son. He's been preaching through the apostles. Let me show you this snapshot, Acts chapter 5. You can turn there if you're fast. If not, don't worry. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. This is a guy named Gamaliel. See, the Jews, these Pharisees, Sadducees, they're getting together and saying, man, these guys are preaching and everybody's wanting to follow them. So Gamaliel says these words. He said, if this plan or this undertaking of, is of man, it will fail. What are we to do? He's saying, if this plan is from man, it's going to fail. But if it's of God, you'll not be able to overthrow these dudes. You might even be found opposing God. So they took it his advice, and they called in all the apostles. They gave them a good beating, just for good measure. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing and singing, Ha ha, we got a beat. <laughs> And counting it worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And listen what it says next. And every day in the temple, from house to house to house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. I want you to see the apostles as preaching. After a good beating, mind you. You wonder if a sermon is successful. Sometimes I ask Christy on a Sunday after we go home, What do you think, baby? You think that went okay? I've never been beaten. Before or after a sermon, these guys, after a beating, are rejoicing and teaching and preaching. And then there was a guy named Stephen in Acts chapter 7. The whole chapter is really consumed with his sermon. 
And it ends with these words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep because he was just beaten to death with a bunch of rocks. How'd that sermon go? In the eyes of the world, in the eyes of preaching, in the eyes of real life, you might be like, ah, oh, well, that sermon was pretty much unsuccessful. But consider this embedded within this sermon. Consider this in this passage before, while he's being stoned, that something is happening. They cast him out of the city. The witnesses lay down their garments at the feet of a young man, a young dude named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. A future preacher watched this preacher in possibly what we might perceive as an unsuccessful sermon getting stoned to death. Can you imagine that it did not impact the rest of his preaching ministry as he preached all over the Roman Empire later, Paul? And he too was stoned. He was beaten, he was imprisoned, and he was shipwrecked before a message worth preaching. There's no such thing as an unsuccessful sermon. I think about pictures like Amos chapter 5. Amos said, they hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. There are times where the preacher will be beaten, where the preacher will be stoned. But this had to have impacted Paul. And then Paul pours himself into a young man named Timothy. I'll read the passage to you just so you can kind of hear what he charges Timothy with. He encourages Timothy to do something specifically. He wants Timothy. I'll, I'll read it to you. If you want to turn there, you can. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge to the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. He doesn't say develop a, a vision and a business plan for the churches that I want you to plant. He doesn't say come up with a scheme that's really going to reach a bunch of people. He says, you know what? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And here's what preaching will look like. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Well, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Tim, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, preach the word. What I want you to see is that God has been preaching over the ages. He's been raising up preachers, whether it's a, a sunrise or whether it's a little dude named, young dude named Timothy. He's been raising up preachers to preach, to proclaim, to exalt, to declare with fire the glory of the Lord through the exposition of the word. Why is this part of the church series? Because the church's food is the preached an exposed word. The church is a taught people. Now, if you're already in Acts chapter 2, you're ready. If not, then go ahead and turn there. I want you to see this unfold. I want you to see this in motion. Not that I'm just coming up with this idea that preaching is important. I want you to see it. Acts chapter 2. You're going to hear really the first sermon that was ever preached to the church. Beginning in verse 14. They just had the tongues of fire where people were speaking and 
They're speaking in, in languages they don't even know. They're preaching and people are understanding it. And then Peter starts preaching. He stands with the eleven and he lifts up his voice. There it is again, the difference between teaching and preaching. He is exalting the truth. He is heralding the truth. He lifts up his voice and he addresses them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. You want to know what else teaching, or excuse me, preaching is? It's exposing the Word of God. The Word of God at the time of this preaching was that really the whole Old Testament. And what's Peter going back and grabbing? Right here he's grabbing Joel. Come here, Joel. I need your words because they're Bible words. And listen to what the words are. And in the last days it shall be God declares. There's the originator. The words originated with God and they're passed through Joel. Joel, and then Joel passes them on to Peter, and then Peter's passing them on to the church. Let's see what unfolds. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter looks up from the book of Joel and he looks at his congregation. He says, men of Israel, hear these words, these Bible words that I just gave you that originated with God, that went through faulty, frail people like Joel via Peter to the newly born church. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says, more Bible words, more satellites. David says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also would dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, he looks up from the book of Psalms chapter 16. It says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him that he would sit, set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, has poured out on this, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He has poured out these truths that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's poured out these truths through a man named Joel, then through a man named Peter, onto the newborn church. You're seeing it and hearing it unfold. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself. More Bible words. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and he continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. What I want you to see right there is that the church was born through the preaching of the word. It started with a dude named Joel. Actually, it started with a God named God. Went through a dude named Joel. Then we see some David in there. And then we hear some Peter to 3,000 charter members of the church. The church was born through the preaching of the word. You know, it could have been seven weeks earlier when Jesus was nailed to a cross. It could have been high noon when it was dark. Why wasn't the church born right then and there? When Jesus was saying, it is finished. How come the first church service wasn't right there? Or how come it wasn't two days later or on the third day specifically? On a Sunday morning when he walked out, stepped out into a dewy Sunday morning. Why wasn't the church born there? Because it was born right here at Pentecost through the preaching of, in fact, the former chicken of Passover, Peter himself. The guy who seven weeks earlier had run like a, like a chicken, scared of a maiden girl. Ooh, I don't know this Jesus. And here seven weeks later, he's the preacher, the bold preacher of Pentecost. Here Peter speaks, he explains the gospel in verse 14 with a lifted voice. He's exposing the scriptures, going back to Joel, going back to David, Psalm 16, Psalm 110. He's pointing to Jesus. Do you hear him time after time saying, this Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus? It's not seven steps to a happy life. It's not three steps to managing your money. He's preaching Jesus and he's calling them to repentance In verse 38, he's assuring them in verse 39. And in verse 40, he's continuing to exhort them, continuing to urge them to save themselves from a lost generation. And through the preaching of the word, the church was born. And in fact, what that church continued to look like is a people devoted to the teaching and preaching of the word. Through faulty instrumentation, the former chicken of Passover is who God chose to be the preacher of Pentecost. That's where the church was born, through a feeble instrument like that. Man, it hit me as I've been preparing this sermon. Just imagine what a silent cross and a silent empty tomb would have looked like. Imagine the heartbreak if on Friday all that unfolded were the sounds of a whip, the sounds of tearing flesh, the sounds of jeers, the sound of metal on metal, hammered nails, the sounds of sobs. And then imagine the sounds on a Sunday morning with the crickets chirping and the birds singing and stones sliding against stone. What would these things even be without exposition and explanation and exaltation and heralding? 
what would they even be? There would be a severe heartbreak. It's through the teaching and preaching of the word, the exposition of the word, that these, comes, these things come into contact, intersecting with the heart. The church was born through the teaching and preaching of the word. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. I want, you, I want you to see how important preaching is to the life of the church. It was the instrument that God chose to use for the church's birthday. And I want you to see something more here in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 22, reading through verse 25, but I'm skipping the poem on purpose because I want you to get the flow of this. If you have that little center section that's set off, that's poetry. And we're not going to read that. I want you to get the flow of this. In verse 22, having purified your souls, he's writing to believers, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And this word, jump down to verse 25, is the good news that was preached to you. Man, what I want you to see is I want to backtrack here. I want you to see that from preaching comes, first of all, rebirth. Look in verse 23. You've been born again through this seed that was preached to you. And then look back at verse 22. Let's backtrack even more. First of all, you're born again. And then secondly, you have purified souls. And then third, there's obedience to the truth. And fourth, there's sincere brotherly love. And fifth, there's love one for another, earnest love that comes from a pure heart. All of that came from the preaching of the word. Man, I hear those things unfold. Pure souls, obedience to the truth, sincere brotherly love, earnest love for one another from, the, from a, a pure heart rebirth. And I think, what else is there? And people ask me, what is your church about? How about that? What's your vision for your church? How about that? And what does it start with? The, the preaching of the word is the thing that gives birth to that. If we do not preach, how can we hope for these things? If you don't eat the priest's word, how can you hope for rebirth, pure soul, obedience to the truth, sincere brotherly love, earnest love for one another that comes from a pure heart. There's no scheme that can create that. There's no program that can create that. There's no design that can create that. It's just the simple preaching of the word. If the church just sits around and muses together, or if the preacher just strokes his people week after week, sharing funny stories and emails, how can we hope for life and love and obedience and purity? Man, we can laugh about those stories over lunch, but we can't hope for those things. Those things come from the preaching of the Word. If you view the preaching of the Word as somehow peripheral to your life are optional to your life how can you hope for life love obedience and purity it's how you get it that's why it scares me so when I see people that I love dining infrequently or dining indifferently 
are dining distractedly. I think, man, I wish I could just give you a bottle of brotherly love. I wish I could somehow give you a bottle of pure uh, souls. I wish somehow I could inspire obedience to the truth. But if you do not engage the preached word, forget about it. I got nothing for you. I got no book you can read. Nothing that you can eat. Nothing that you can wear. It's just the preached word. The church was born through it. And the church is sustained through the preaching of the word. Now here's the problem. Go back to Numbers chapter 12. Here's the problem. Last week I introduced the rub. Here's the rub. Numbers chapter 12. It's a passage we looked at just very, very briefly last week. But man, it's, it really exposes something this week. You may remember the difficult time that Moses had leading a people as they moved through the wilderness. A bunch of stiff-necked people, hard to lead. Listen to this from Moses' own brother and sister. Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. You can just imagine how this thing unfolded. Aaron and Miriam are sitting talking around, sitting around talking. And they're like, man, can you believe he married that Cushite woman? Moses is kind of on my nerves right now. Can you believe, I mean, insert problem. Can you believe he wears jeans? Can you believe that he speaks so sharply and pointedly to me? Can you believe he doesn't glad hand me all day long? He's just not as nice as I think a preacher ought to be. Can you believe he married a Cushite woman? I think let's replace him with some dialogue. Let's just you and me compare notes from now on. God speaks to us too, doesn't he? Who needs this joker? Let me tell you something. That's the human condition right there unfolding right in front of you. We want to replace vertical monologue with dialogue. And here's what it shows up as in, in the church. Who needs the preacher? Who needs those straight pews? Not that you have to have straight pews, but they all kind of go together. When I hear it, just kind of created like a caricature. Who needs that one guy up talking while we're all quiet? Who needs those straight pews? Who needs that rectangular building? It all just kind of goes together for the one caricaturing this thing to just dismiss it. Ah, who needs all that stuff? Let's replace it with a couple dudes sitting around at Starbucks saying, Hey man, what does this passage mean to you? Oh, well, here's what it means to me. Well, what does it mean to you? Oh, here's what it means to me. We replace monologue with dialogue. And here's the reality. If you want to replace preaching with what does it mean to you devotional time? which in and of itself is not bad. But it's not a good replacement for this monologue where God speaks to his people. If you want to replace the preaching of God's word with the dialogue, then you'll not get God's message for a people. You'll get 
some sort of weak association of people eating a weak meal washed down with weak drink with no clear message building and shaping and directing a people. You'll not beget the church. You'll beget a couple dudes that say they love Jesus hanging out at Starbucks. The what does this mean to you dialogue minus the God exposing monologue does not create people who will go the distance in a difficult marriage. It does not create people who can die of cancer with a smile on their face and with joy in their heart. What does this mean to you, sort of devotionals, without the God monologue does not create people who will die for their faith. No martyrs will walk out of Starbucks having dismissed the God-ordained, God-provided monologue. Wafer-thin consideration makes for wafer-thin faith. Deep exposition and hearty exaltation from a man who spent the week with God builds and equips a people. And it doesn't have to be in a rectangular building. It can be in somebody's living room. Man, I'll tell you something that ought to be helpful for you. It's helpful for me. The Exodus is just so informative for me. When you watch Moses and the people, just consider these vertical movements of Moses. Don't turn here. Just listen. They're at Sinai. Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. Moses goes up the mountain. Chapter 19, verse 14. Moses comes down the mountain. Chapter 19, verse 20, Moses goes up the mountain. Chapter 24, verse 13, he must have come down because he's going up the mountain again. Chapter 24, verse 15, Moses goes up the mountain. Chapter 24, verse 18, Moses goes up the mountain. Chapter 32, 32, verse 15, Moses comes down the mountain. Chapter 34, Moses goes up the mountain. Chapter 34, verse 29, 29, Moses comes down the mountain. It will be helpful to you to see this preacher... As a man that's appointed to trek to the mountaintop each week. A man that makes that hard journey up and down the mountain. He goes there while the people tend to their tents. He goes there. He's appointed to go there while the people gather quail and manna and make some gumbo. And dine in anticipation of when Moses gets back down that mountain. A people that are eagerly anticipating Moses' return. Eagerly anticipating God's message to a people. The rightly readied preacher makes the trek, stiff-arming distractions. He's laboring in the word. He comes down with the goods in hand for the people of God who should be eager and ready and hungry and attentive. If you want to know what it looks like, that's what it's supposed to look like. The God monologue, this vertical message from God, begets a worthwhile dialogue. Dialogue by itself begets drivel and musings that do not give life. The God monologue begets dialogue that's worth talking about, worth gnawing on in small groups, in dens, even at Starbucks. But the dialogue by itself, forget about it. Somebody must climb to the mountaintop to get a message from God for his people to discuss, to eat, to dine on, to direct us.
The church is a taught people. The church is also a teachable people. I'll share a few passages with you. You can just listen. Proverbs. Proverbs is a great place to go. I'll give you the references if you want to jot them down. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 7. This is having to deal with you now. I've been preaching on whoever's standing up here. It may be me, it might be Steve, it might be Brad, it might be Scott, it may be some other preacher who's standing and exulting and heralding the good news. Now I'm going to deal with y'all. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 7. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. That's bad news for me and Steve and Brad and Scott. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. I've got scars. I promise you, even just in six years, I've got scars. And I encourage you to examine yourself if you become the preacher sermon critic. Or if it's disassembling you week by week. If the message is running you through week by week. Or if you're the self-appointed pastor corrector. Are you a scoffer? Just giving abuse and injury? He says, don't reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, though, and he will love you. The problem is the sanctuary is full of some of each each week. Hopefully a whole lot more wise men than scoffers. The wise men will say, you know what? That reproof hurt, but that reproof is what I needed. Thank you. I love you for giving me that reproof. That's what the wise man says. Thank you for that sermon. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Chapter 10, verse 8. The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 12. Apply your heart to instruction and your ear to words of knowledge. Chapter 25, verse 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. I've been treated like a gold ring before. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. Do y'all view me as sent each week to the mountaintop? Do you view Steve as sent if he's preaching? Are you bathing him in prayer as he makes that journey to the mountaintop each week? Are you anticipating that message that comes back down the mountain? That's going to be like apples of gold and fields of silver? Just right. Just what I need on my wall. He refreshes the soul of his masters. Chapter 28, verse 14. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. The church is an eating people. The church is a taught people. The church is a preached to people. Preached to week by week by week. A people who are walking in, i.e. hearing and doing his message together. The people who are staying in step with the indwelling Holy Spirit as he leads, as he guides through the exposition of the work, that is the church. That's who the church is. Turn to John chapter 8. This is one I wanted you to see. 
This passage arrested me, made me tremble. It also encouraged me all at the same time. John chapter 8 is the chapter that I would call the revival gone bad. It really starts in verse 12 is where the revival begins, or the, the yeah, we'll call it that, the revival. It ends in verse 59. It's all in the same setting. Jesus is preaching a message on being the light of the world. Seems harmless, right? He's preaching a message on being the light of the world. And in verse 30, it looks like things went well. As he's saying these things, many believed in him. People were behind the scenes. They're getting those little sharp, or those little pencils that are never sharp. And they're sharpening them. And they're getting the little, um, the little cards, the little decision cards. The front rows are just full of people making decisions, man. He preached on being the light of the world. And blam! People believed, and they're filling the front rows, ready to make a decision. You can just imagine the disciples, man, we're getting a following now. Whew, I'm glad I'm with Jesus. Problem is, he kept on preaching. And in verse 31, he says these words that really made me tremble. He said to the Jews, not just to any old Jews, but he said to the ones who had believed in him. To the ones who are filling out their decision cards. He says to them, he says, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. When I preach that passage, I'm telling you, I quaked. I quaked because I considered how many people believe but aren't abiding in this word. As he says, a true disciple will. Abiding in means that you live in it. It means it's your food. It means it's your friend. It means it's your bed. It's your life. It's not just some passing fancy that you dabble in from week to week. It's your very nourishment. And he says, those are my true disciples. What it seems to connect with is... The flip side of that, the many that will say, hey, Lord, I'm here. And he says, I never knew you. That's why it makes me tremble as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, as a worshiper myself. Do I abide in these very words? It looks like the church will live in this book. And God has given teachers and preachers to the church to escort us into this book. It will be a teachable people that know they need the escort. Week by week, as the church is to be taught, it is also to be teachable. Now, I'm going to deal with probably what's the most difficult portion of this sermon. I was thinking about cutting it short, but you need this. I'm going to deal with the impact and the content of this message. First of all, the impact. This may be bad news to you. It may be difficult news to you. It may be just a plain old curveball to find this out about Jesus. I'm going to read a passage to you in Luke chapter 12. If you want to turn there, you can. I know I didn't lead you on to be ready for this, but Luke chapter 12. The impact of this message, because it connects to the taught and teachable. The impact of this message, Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 49. Jesus says, it's in red letters there. You know it's Jesus. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth. It doesn't say, I came to bring kumbaya. 
I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Look at this next verse. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? I bet if you asked a, a random sample of Christians, did Jesus come to bring peace on earth? Most would say, well, yeah, sure. But look at what he says. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? He says, no, but rather division. Anybody ever read that? Oh, wait, wait a second. That's a curveball. I thought it's peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That's how the song goes. You need to look at the scripture. We're talking about a vertical peace between man and God. We're not talking about worldwide kumbaya. Otherwise, they would have put a crown on his head, a real crown. They wouldn't have crucified him. You need to look at what happened to this messenger. He says, I came to bring division. And I'm going to give you some examples. Luke chapter, or John chapter 6. John chapter 6 was the first time I ever saw this unfold. I mean, in real life. A new preacher. I think we've been here three, three and a half years maybe by the time we got to John chapter 6. Maybe three. And man, it was standing room only in here. In the sanctuary. It was more packed than this. People stuffed in here like cordwood. We're like, man, that guy's really growing this church. Check it out. And then we got to John chapter 6. And I had to preach a couple passages because I'm preaching verse by verse. And I'm not picking and choosing the easy preachable sugar stick messages. I'm preaching the vegetables too. And those ones that are kind of broccoli. That you may not ideally go after. John chapter 6 Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The word in the original language is drags him. No one can even come to me unless the Father drags him to me. He says it over over here a different way in verse 65. He says, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. I remember preaching those couple of verses, and we lost about a quarter to a fifth of our church in one Sunday. How about that? It may have been more than that. But it shouldn't have surprised me because when you read the next verse, verse 66, after this, after what? After what he just said. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Ooh, I'm done with him. He sounded like a Calvinist. Mm, I'm out of here, boy. I knew it was going to come up some point. Man, we saw it happen right here in front of us. Division through the teaching and preaching of the word. Not worldwide kumbaya. We had division right here. We had a big old empty spot right over here. Weekly reminder. That's not the only occasion. Since we're on that page, look at John chapter 7 verse 48. Starting in verse 40. Jesus has just been preaching on come to me and man there's rivers of living water flowing out. And in verse 40, it says, When they heard these words, these truth words, just preaching really, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. And others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Like saying, Isn't that from Quinlan? (laughs) Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Look at chapter 9, verse 16. Just over the next page. 
Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was what? There was a division among them. Some of y'all think Jesus came and just brought like kumbaya all over the Holy Land. You didn't read his story. Man, there's division all over the place. Here's another one. John chapter 10, verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Because of what words? Because of the sermon that he just preached on being a good shepherd. Being a good shepherd? That sounds like an innocuous sermon. How could that create division? It did. Because the word rightly exposed will create unrest. It will rock worlds. And some people will run from it. And some people will say, bring it. Some people will say, I want to worship him. And some people will say, where's my rock? It's all over John right here. John chapter, 10, uh, chapter 8 verse 59. They want to stone him. John chapter 10 verse 31. They want to stone him. They're picking up rocks to kill him. John chapter 5 verse 18. They want to kill him. John chapter 7 verse 1. They want to kill him. The content of the message, excuse me, the impact of the message is going to be, it's going to be painful for a lot of people. But it's going to be sweet and beautiful for some people. But I think even for those people, even for those that is somehow beautiful and sweet, I think of this passage in Hebrews. Listen, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Ouch. It's piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. Ouch. Piercing. It's discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Ouch. Discernment. And no creature's hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Man, there's an internal division as you cleave to God and are torn from the natural man. It happens in families. It happens in individuals. It happens in the church. So preaching, if done faithfully, will sometimes break down, but sometimes it will build up. Sometimes in the same sermon, one is broken down and convicted and even maybe even condemned. And another is encouraged, encouraged and assured. It will sometimes bring judgment and it will sometimes affirm. It will sometimes feel good and it will sometimes be painful. Here, sharp. Here, piercing. So look for and anticipate a message that's true. It won't always be comfortable. If you're looking for a comfortable church with a comfortable sermon week by week, I'm just going to say that somehow homeboy's skipping a lot of scripture. Telling a lot of emails, funny jokes. Comfort's overrated. I want the truth. The impact is not always what you expect. And the content, lastly, I'm going to deal with the content. It's not about the preacher. The message each week is not about the preacher. Preacher Preaching so easily becomes about the messenger. That's what it did for Miriam and Aaron, right? That old Moses marrying that Cushite woman. I'm just not even going to listen to him anymore. Insert reason X. I'm not going to listen to Ben anymore or Brad or Steve or Scott. Mm, I'm done. God speaks to us directly too, doesn't he? Who needs them? 
It so easily becomes about the preacher. We become too focused on how it was said and even who said it. Some of y'all are here looking for a church home. When you go looking for a church home, I urge you, don't base your decision on whether or not you like the preacher. Don't base it on whether or not you like the messenger. Base it on whether or not the message is true. And sometimes be a guy that you just kind of, he just kind of irks you. But man, it's so true. I don't even like how he said that, but it's so true. I don't imagine anybody like John the Baptist. You think anybody said, man, my best friend, John the Baptist, man, we're pals. Could anybody have liked John the Baptist? Man, I bet the song was just raw. Should you be shopping for a messenger or should you be seeking a message? It needs to be the latter. Paul tried to remove this from the Corinthian mind. Listen to this passage. You can, you can turn here. It's the last passage I'll have you turn to. And it's worth turning to. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Oh, yeah. It's worth turning to. Paul tried to remove the issue of the messenger. He dealt with the Corinthian church a lot. I, I'm, I'm a follower of Apollos. Well, I'm a follower of Cephas. I'm a follower of Paul. Everybody's got their messenger. They're so focused on the messenger. So Paul, in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, he says this. He says, I, let me remind you of this, homies. I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Look at me, I'm Paul the messenger. He says, I decided, I made a decision. When I'm thinking about this sermon that's unfolding for this church, I decided... You know what? I'm going to ditch the emails. I'm going to ditch the funny stories. I'm going to ditch my opinions. I'm going to ditch all that. And I'm going to decide to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith may not rest on the messenger. Because it's a matter of time before the messenger disappoints you. That your faith may not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Man, I want to urge you as a church, whether you're looking for a church home or whether you're deciding is this going to continue to be my church home or whether you're here just eating it up. Whatever your situation, the messenger is just a mouthpiece. He's just the dude that was appointed to climb the mountain that week. Pray for him. Encourage him. It's hard work. But it's not about him. It's about what's exposed. That's the good stuff. And what Paul said I'm going to expose, that's what this message is about. If you want to discern, is my church preaching what it should be? Or the church that I'm looking for, is it preaching what it should be? Or the church that I'm thinking I might need to leave, are they doing this? Are they doing what Paul decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified? The message each week is Jesus. It's not seven steps to a happy marriage. It's not three steps to managing your money. The message is Jesus. Jesus is not to be presented as a means to an end to give you a happy life. Jesus is not the one that's presented to be somebody who's supposed to help you get what you want. That's to encourage idolatry. 
He is the one who should be worshipped. He's not the one who delivers the goods. He is the goods. That's what preaching is supposed to be. That's the content. I want to encourage you as we move into the Lord's Supper. I felt like this morning, I don't know if I told Christy this, I was thinking about this, I feel like, no, maybe I didn't. I feel like this morning I'm preaching to the choir because I've never imagined a more attentive people in my whole life. But choir members sometimes drop their choir book and pick up a rock. And choir members sometimes get crossways about the wrong stuff. Man, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. I'm accountable for every single word that I say. I'm not asking for carte blanche to just say whatever I want, however I want to say it. Or for, for Brad or for Steve or for Scott. We don't want that. But when you're examining, is the preaching of the word showing up at my church? Am I dining on the word week by week? I want you to have the goods to ask and answer that question correctly, biblically. There's too much at stake. There's too many natural man preferences all wrapped up in there, and it's hard to differentiate between the two sometimes. Let the Word expose. Let the Word diagnose. We're going to end our morning with the Lord's Supper. We're going to dine together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. <laughs> and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we are taking this broken bread as a picture of a broken body, Lord, that we will be a broken people. That week by week, broken preachers will stand and expose the word at whatever cost to their what people think of them. Whatever insults may fly. That the broken wise will eat it and be nourished and be led and be equipped and be prepared for worship and wonder. Lord, I pray for a broken people to hold these broken pre preachers accountable for what they say. 
I pray for a broken people that are begging for the word to be exposed week by week, anticipating the return from the mountaintop. Lord, I am blessed, blessed by a church that gives that mountain climber a priority this week to climb and study and dig. Blessed by people that say, go get it. Go get it and bring it back because we need it. Lord, I pray that we'll always be that broken people. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.